0: Welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, America's big new rocket now sits on the launch pad after being rolled out of the Vehicle Assembly Building at the Kennedy Space Centre on Friday. And of course there were some celebratory speeches. And we have a report on the alignment, successful, yes, successful, of the 18 mirrors of the James Webb Space Telescope. And uh, that will precede some poetry. And Defence Minister Peter Dutton announces the Australian Space Command. And uh, diary time, so please keep your diary handy. And we begin the show with Space Show
1: News.
0: For several years now, it has been the policy of the Federal Government to charge companies a fee to grant space launch permits. Yep, you're not allowed to put something into space without the permission of the Government. The scheme was to have come into effect in 2020 but was postponed due to COVID-19 and until several weeks ago was to have come into effect from July. It has been announced by Science Minister Melissa Price that the federal government would not be pursuing its quote, Commonwealth cost recovery scheme for space launches and return, end quote. The scheme would have seen Australian companies charged as much as $200,000 for launch permit applications. The uh, South Australian company, Southern Launch, welcomed the announcement. It said that the proposed fee would have been three times the cost of rocket development and mission costs. The company said that this was 30 times higher than in other countries countries and the Federal Government Minister Melissa Price has tasked the Australian Space Agency to develop a space strategic update covering the next two decades the aim is to align efforts across the space industry but don't expect to read the strategy tomorrow (laughs) there will be 18 months of consultations first and then they'll have to write the darn thing Now, Australian Defence Minister Peter Dutton gave a speech yesterday to a military conference. In it, he noted the activation of the previously announced Australian Defence Space Command. The space show was not there to record the speech, so we have cobbled together the full space-related parts of the Minister's speech from three sources. Two of them were plugged into the microphone feed and the other recorded the auditorium ambience.
2: The times in which we live reinforce the enduring importance of hard power, both in defence of a nation and to deter aggression, and the absolute necessity of like-minded nations working together more closely, together to preserve the peace and the stability which which has and will continue to push humanity forward. As we know, technological developments continue to change the character of warfare, particularly in the air and space domain. Together with like-minded partners and the United Nations, Australia has long championed and been responsible and peaceful in our use of outer space in accordance with international norms. Space is becoming more congested and is already contested particularly as the boundaries between competition and conflict become increasingly blurred through grey zone activities. Tellingly, more than 7,500 satellites orbit the Earth, with thousands more being launched each year. While space is primarily a civil domain to support navigation, communication networks, financial systems, scientific enterprises, weather forecasting, and disaster response, it will undoubtedly become a domain which takes on greater military significance in this century – a domain which is now an operational theatre which provides space-based communication, intelligence and navigation to the joint force. We know that some countries are developing capabilities to threaten or degrade space networks, to target satellites and to destroy space systems – countries that see space as a territory for their taking rather than one to be shared. In November last year, as part of an anti-satellite missile test, Russia destroyed its own redundant Cosmos 1408, which left behind a cloud of more than 1,500 pieces of lethal debris that will take decades to clear. For any nation, losing access to space would have significant civil and military consequences. Thus, all nations have an interest in assuring their access to space. It's a domain which must be used to deter aggression rather than become a new realm for conflict. So, friends, to that end, it's my great pleasure today to officially announce the stand-up of Australia's Defence Space Command. I want to congratulate the newly appointed head of that command, Air Vice-Marshal Kath Roberts. Australia's Defence Space Command will initially be modest compared to those similar well-established functions which already exist among some of our allies. But make no mistake, We are looking forward, and it's a necessary endeavour with a view to protecting our national interests and our need for a Space Force in the future. Defence Space Space Command comprises personnel from three services – Defence Public Service and Industry Contractors. It works in close collaboration with the Australian Space Agency, with industry partners and our research and scientific institutions. Importantly, Defence Space Command is Australia's contribution towards a larger collective effort among like-minded countries to ensure a safe, stable and secure space domain. By developing our sovereign space capabilities, we will not only become more self-reliant, but also be a better ally and partner through the combined effects of our capabilities. Australia's aim will be to invest in new military space capabilities to counter threats to assure our continued access to space-based intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, and to uphold the free use of space. Guiding the efforts and priorities of Australia's Defence Space Command is the Defence Space Strategy, which I'm pleased also to release today. Importantly, Australia and the United States are strengthening our alliance to support our mutual objectives in the space domain. The Australian Department of Defence and the US National Reconnaissance Office have committed to a broad range of cooperative satellite activities which will expand Australia's space knowledge and capabilities. Our partnership will also contribute to the US National Reconnaissance Office's pursuit of a more capable, integrated and resilient space architecture to support global coverage in a wide range of intelligence mission requirements.
0: And speaking yesterday, that was Defence Minister Peter Dutton. And also yesterday, the Chief of Air Force released this promotional feature. Here is what Air Marshal Mel Hupfield had to say.
3: Australia is hugely dependent on civil and defence space capabilities. Space is vital to our Australian society. Our financial systems, navigation, weather and telecommunications all rely on space capability. We cannot take this for granted. Space is also critical to defending Australia and enables our ADF warfighting effectiveness, our situational awareness and the delivery of real-time communications and information. Space helps connect us across the other domains of air, land, maritime and cyber, providing real-time information to our deployed forces everywhere. And that is why space is now recognised formally as an operational domain. I've been designated as the Chief of Air Force to be the lead of the space domain in addition to the air domain. Therefore, I'm responsible for coordinating defence space activities and the overall integration of space effects. This includes policy, space control, space services and technology, and stakeholder engagement with the Australian Space Agency and industry. We must also work closely with our allies and international partners to assure our access to space while being responsible users of the space domain. Space is becoming more congested and contested. Over 6,000 satellites are already orbiting the Earth and thousands more are being launched every year as Australia is committed to a rules-based global order, we'll continue to promote responsible behaviour in space through the promotion of norms and standards. Australia's unique geographical location and vast open land in the Southern Hemisphere provides immense opportunities for the development of space capabilities. Australia is investing $7 billion over the next decade in our own space capabilities giving us more to contribute to the security and economic prosperity of our region. While technologies and systems are important, they are only part of what enables the delivery of space power. Our people and partners will bring the curiosity and creativity required to conceive the space power that we'll need to meet our future challenges. To enable me to deliver this vision as the Space Domain Lead, I'm proud to officially establish today the Defence Space Command and in doing so I welcome and congratulate Air Vice Marshal Kath Roberts as the inaugural Space Commander.
0: To realise our space aspirations Space Command brings together trailblazers from Navy, Army, Air Force and the Department of Defence together under an integrated headquarters within Air Force Our space future will be powered by our vibrant space industry. We will work closely with industry and academia, engaging with the best and brightest Aussie smarts for our unique space capabilities. Space is incredibly exciting and challenging at the same time. We have to be creative, collaborative and inventive to overcome the obstacles and grab hold of the opportunities. Together we will reach for the stars to protect Australia, our freedom, our values and our way of life. And for more about the Australian Defence Space Command, then visit our 2021 programs page on space.southernfm.com.au. That's space.southernfm.com.au. Scroll down to the 2021 program page, click on that, and then scroll down to May the 12th. And uh, we did a program about that uh, what is now called the Defence Space Command. It was, had a different name last year, and uh, you can find out more about it.
3: 88.3 Southern FM.
0: And this is the Space Show. Now, by now, there would be few people in the world who don't know the colours of the Ukrainian flag. Imagine the surprise then when three Russian cosmonauts, boarded the International Space Station last week wearing, guess what, the bright yellow and blue flight suits. So talk about look at the spaceship in the sky. The spaceship in the sky at the moment is, of course, the International Space Station. So Roscosmos, that's the Russian space agency, denied any connection with Ukraine, stating that the flight suits were made long ago, and are in the colours of the Borman Moscow State Technical University, where all three cosmonauts graduated. Well, in related news, American astronaut Mark Hay will return to Earth aboard a Russian Soyuz next Wednesday with landing in Kazakhstan. He will fly back to the United States, probably via Germany, and avoid travelling over Russia. The Ukrainian Space Agency has 16,000 employees, or at least they did until a few weeks ago. The agency controls 20 state-run corporations. The Zenit rocket is Ukrainian. Now that's the rocket that the long-defunct Australian company Cape York Space Agency planned to use to launch satellites. The first stage of the American Antares rockets are designed and manufactured in the Ukraine. Antares is used to launch payloads to the International Space Station. Now, engines for the Ariane Space Vega rockets also come from the Ukraine. In the early days of the war, the Russians did not attack the factories used to manufacture these rockets. The former chairman of the Ukraine Space Agency, Vladimir Yusov, said he thinks this is because Russia wants to get hold of them and use them for their purposes. I have no information on the current status of those uh, space facilities. Now, do you remember the Antonov An-225? That's an aircraft that first flew in December of 1988. It was dubbed the Maria, M-R-I-Y-A, and it was designed and built in the Ukraine Soviet Socialist Republic to transport the Buran space shuttle orbiters and the Zenit space launch rockets. Only one was ever built, although construction of a second was begun but not finished. Now, it has flown to many countries carrying oversized payloads under the flag of Antonov Airlines. With a maximum takeoff mass of 640 tons, the AN-225 held several records, including heaviest aircraft ever built and largest wingspan of any operational aircraft. When the Maria visited Perth in 2016, more than 35,000 people turned out to see it. The resulting road traffic chaos resulted in some regular airline passengers missing their flights. Since then, the aircraft has visited the country several times, often carrying mining equipment. Well, in late February, the aircraft was destroyed during the Battle of Antonov Airport. So we won't be seeing the Maria again. Although the Ukrainians say they will rebuild it. I don't know, maybe they can, or maybe they could build the, um, the, the, the partially finished one and there's no information at the moment as to the status of that aircraft, whether it also has been destroyed or not. In other news related to Ukraine, scientists at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics have placed an instrument aboard the Russian Spectrum Ronjan Gamma astrophysics satellite into SAFE mode. The German instrument is called E-Rosita and is used to identify black holes. The satellite was launched in 2019 and is a cooperative venture between the German Aerospace Center and the Russian space agency Roscosmos. The E-Rosita was switched off on February 26, just days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine as part of Europe's effort to Cease cooperation with Russia, the United Kingdom company One Web has for some years used the Russian Suez rockets to launch its communication satellites in sets of thirty six. A further set was due to be launched on march the fourth. The satellites were nested atop the Soyuz rocket on the launch pad at Baikonur Cosmodrome when the war broke out. Now, Roscosmos demanded that OneWeb guarantee the satellites would not be used for military purposes and that the United Kingdom government divest itself of its investment in OneWeb. The um, United Kingdom government put some money into the OneWeb company uh, several years ago in order to get it out of bankruptcy. Now, on March the 2nd, OneWeb ordered its employees to leave Baikonur. Two days later, the Soyuz rocket was lowered onto its railway wagon and rolled back several kilometres to its assembly building. Well, OneWeb already has more than 420 of a planned constellation of 648 satellites in orbit as part of its broadband network. In the past times, the Soviet Union and the United States spent billions of dollars orbiting photographic reconnaissance satellites. Today, companies like Maxar Technologies have fleets of imaging satellites. These have been monitoring the war in the Ukraine and they only cost a few tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars instead of billions. And uh, you have almost certainly seen some of these remarkable images in the newspaper, on television or on the internet, perhaps when the Russians were massing for their invasion or perhaps you saw the convoy of... Uh, Tanks and vehicles on the roads of the Ukraine. Well, two satellites in particular have been useful. These are the Worldview 2 and the Worldview 3. One multispectral image even shows the muzzle flash from one of a battery of guns parked in a paddock near Kyiv. With smoke, and dust surrounding the recently fired other five guns. Do you remember Jared Isaacman, who commanded a four-person orbital spaceflight aboard a SpaceX Crew Dragon last year? In the process, he raised money to support the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, which researches cancer treatment for children. Last week, the hospital announced that its clinic and foundation partners in Poland and Ukraine have received nine Starlink internet terminals provided by the Polaris program. It's a private spaceflight project led by Jarek Isaacman. This will allow the hospital to support Ukrainian patients should ground-based internet links be cut. By the way, Isaacman plans to rent two more crew dragons from SpaceX, the first later this year, from which they'll make a spacewalk, the first private spacewalk ever. Well, that hospital in the Ukraine is not the only recipient in the Ukraine of Starlink terminals. Spacelink has delivered terminals to restore communications and connectivity for other internet users. Elon Musk has pledged to send car power socket adapters and solar charging equipment in order to help keep the terminals powered when regular electricity is not available. The European Space Agency says that the planned September launch of its ExoMars rover to Mars aboard a Russian proton rocket is, and I quote, very unlikely. The situation is quite complex. Although the proton rockets are manufactured in Russia, they are launched from Kazakhstan, which is a separate country. The Baikonur Cosmodrome is leased from Kazakhstan and staffed by Russians. At present, the British-built rover is in Italy undergoing tests and was scheduled to travel to Russia in April to be mated with the Russian-built lander, the Kazachok. Launch opportunities to Mars occur every 26 months, so the next chance will be in 2024, or the Space Agency says more likely in 2026. Meanwhile, the Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, has decided to withdraw its workforce from the Guyana Space Centre in Kourou. The workers were in French Guyana to prepare Russian-built Soyuz rockets for launch by Ariane Sparse. Ariane Sparse has been using the Soyuz since 2011 to complement the launch capabilities of the heavy-lift Ariane 5 and the small Vega rockets and ariane Sparse is now examining what it can do to reassign the uh, payloads that were going to fly on the Soyuz to either the vega or the ariane 5 and they have under development a new vega rocket called vega c and a new ariane called ariane 6 this has been a report on the war in ukraine on the space show The space show was presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Now we're a non-profit, non-political group of space enthusiasts and uh, we love to learn about what's happening in space and share with people like yourself the excitement of space exploration. So in addition to presenting this radio program on Southern FM, we have public meetings which are free. F-R-E-E. And they're held at the Golden Gate Hotel, which is at 238 Clarendon Street in South Melbourne. And they're held on the fourth Monday of every month except December, when it's held on a different Monday. And we are going to have um, our next meeting this coming Monday, March the 28th, between 7 and 10 p.m., I'll tell you what's going to be on, but first, a related thing is, uh, I'm going to play now. It's with Professor Christian Barry, the School of Philosophy at the Australian National University in Canberra, and he talks about the ethical considerations of sharing the benefits of space utilisation.
1: Well, I think although the challenges will be new challenges in the sense that there'll be challenges that are playing out in a different place. The challenges that we'll need to confront are the same old challenges that we actually already are confronting here on planet Earth. So to give you an example, um, there'll be the issue of how do we determine who gets access to new parts of space that are open for exploration. How are we going to understand claims to ownership when if we discover that there are things in space that are of significant value? Are we going to have treaties? And if we are going to have treaties Um, Are they going to include sharing clauses that ensure that whatever benefits arise from space exploration are widely shared through uh, the, the world at large? Or are they going to be sort of on a first come, first serve, so whoever gets to explore and exploit gets to claim full ownership in those sorts of resources? So those are questions that are familiar even from our world, and we've confronted them before. So if you think about issues like how we're going to divide up the mineral wealth that may be sitting in seabeds that are not part of the territorial waters of any country. And here again, there's the question of, is it simply whoever can access them that will get a claim to them? Or should they be um, exploited only on terms that can be shown to be the benefit of mankind in general? And if you actually look at negotiations and discussion of things like the law of treaty, you see these very rival perspectives on just how we should think about the exploration of new resources like this. But there's another question, which is sort of a question about conservation and whether or not we should conceive of ourselves as having any right to exploit resources that we find in space at all. Um, again, that's a type of issue that comes up even now with our own planet when it comes to things like deep sea seabed resources. Are these resources that we should sort of feel morally free to exploit, regardless of what terms we're trying to exploit them, or do we think that they have a certain status that should be preserved and should be sort of kept free from certain kinds of human use.
0: So on Monday, at the Space Association meeting, a major topic of conversation will be the ethics of space colonization related to this talk we've just had. It's going to be given by Gordon Young, who's the principal of ethological consulting. He's also a lecturer in professional ethics at the School of Design at RMIT University. So he'll be talking to our meeting about the ethics of space colonization. So uh, please do come. Now, the meeting is on Monday between 7 and 9.30 p.m. It's at the Golden Gate Hotel. Now, the Golden Gate Hotel is at 238 Clarendon Street. It's on the northwest corner of clarendon street and coventry street and the meeting will be held upstairs in the coventry room and the meeting itself is free but you can purchase meals and drinks not compulsory to do so but we usually sit around and eat our meals and drinks and listen to the talks and uh We have also a discussion on current spaceflight activities. There are lots of things happening in the field of spaceflight. And if you want to know more about that meeting, then um, you could visit our Space Association website, which is space.asn.au. Space.asn.au. And uh, there are two things to point out about the, uh, the venue. First up, it is not disabled... Accessible. There's no lift. We're upstairs in the Coventry Room, so you need to be able to climb the stairs, uh, unfortunately. And you must be double vaccinated against COVID to uh, to gain entry under Victorian rules. So um, please come along this coming Monday, two hundred thirty-eight Clarendon Street in the Golden Gate Hotel. We look forward to seeing you there. We're an informal, friendly bunch of people.
3: On FM, online and And on TuneIn 24-7, this is 88.3 Southern FM. Fly
2: me to the moon And let me play among the stars
1: Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter
0: and Mars. Off to the moon. <laughs> Not quite uh, there yet. Over in America, at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, they rolled out of the Vehicle Assembly Building, out to the pad, several kilometres away, took 11 hours to do so, the big new rocket It's called the Space Launch System. Silly name, that, but anyway, that's what they call it. And it's, uh, you know, think of the Saturn V and then add a few more meters and you've got it. So Bill Nelson (laughs) was very keen to sing the praises of this thing. Now, who's Bill Nelson? Well, he's the administrator of NASA, and here's what he had to say.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, the world's most powerful rocket ever right here and it's back to the moon and then on to Mars I want to give a shout out to the more than two dozen members of the crawler transporter team they are transporting SLS out to the launch pad and the team is led by Bob Myers who is at the wheel of the crawler across the nation are sacred sites that capture the spirit of America's character and one of those places is right here the Kennedy Space Center at these launch pads remarkable individuals achieve unthinkable things and 60 years ago An American pioneer propelled upwards to the heavens from Launch Complex 14. And that legendary explorer is John Glenn. That spacecraft, Friendship 7, orbited the Earth three times. And that was the day that America's space program went full throttle. It gave way to the Apollo generation. That generation not only landed the first humans on the moon, it provided the spark that fuels today's multi billion dollar satellite industry. It encouraged young visionaries and kicked off a technology revolution. The modern computing era is one example. And we are very privileged to have one of those Apollo astronauts with us, General Tom Stafford, Apollo 10. Today, a new generation, not the Apollo generation, but it's the Artemis generation, is preparing to reach new frontiers. This generation will return astronauts to the moon to conduct groundbreaking science. NASA's Artemis program will pave the way for humanity's giant leap, future missions to Mars. There's no doubt that we are in a golden era of human space exploration, discovery, and ingenuity in space. And it all begins with Artemis I. The Space Launch System is the only rocket capable of sending humans into deep space. It's the most powerful rocket in the world. And during liftoff, it will produce 8.8 million pounds of thrust, propelling the Orion spacecraft about 240,000 miles to the moon. And Orion will venture farther than any spacecraft built for humans that has ever flown humans. It will stay in space longer than any spacecraft designed for astronauts that has ever done without docking to a space station. And after a three week journey of over a million miles, Orion will come home faster and hotter than any vehicle has before. Artemis 1 will demonstrate NASA's commitment to, and capacity to extend humanity's presence on the moon and beyond. But this mission is not just cementing NASA's leadership in space. It's strengthening America's small businesses. It's supporting America's universities. It's showing the might of America's scientists, mathematicians, and technicians. Artemis I is possible because of the contributions from all 50 states. The program is an economic engine for America. In 2019 alone, it generated $14 billion and supported 70,000 good-paying jobs across the country. But to lead in the 21st century, America must not go alone. We must accomplish our goals together. Artemis represents global ambitions and participation from five international partners. The European Space Agency provides the European Service Module, the powerhouse of the Orion spacecraft that provides Electricity, propulsion, thermal control, air, water to Orion in space. This is a critical partnership that not just for Artemis 1, but for the future Artemis missions as well. And that's just the beginning. Thanks to the international collaboration, three so called passengers will fly on Orion Zohar. And Helga, named by the Israel Space Agency and the German Aerospace Center, are two female mannequins. Their jobs are to provide data on radiation levels during the mission. The third passenger is a male mannequin whose name was decided by more than 300,000 people in a naming contest. And his name is Commander Munican Campos, honoring Arturo Campos, the late member of the NASA family. Arturo helped bring the crew of Apollo 13 safely back to Earth. And a surprise! Snoopy in his orange spacesuit will hitch a ride. We're also taking advantage of additional space on SLS to launch several CubeSats in cooperation with the Japan's Aerospace Exploration Agency and the Italian Space Agency. Humanity's drive to explore the cosmos is not bound by border. Discovery strengthens diplomacy. This mission, this program, will build a global alliance that explores deep space for the benefit of all. And of course, Artemis 1 will be a major step, but our journey is far from over. This will be the first in a series of increasingly complex missions. In 2024, for the first time since Apollo 8, astronauts will return to the moon on Artemis 2. The astronauts will, uh, will fly in lunar orbit, venturing farther into space than any humans have ever before. And these are not a series of isolated missions. Each will be a groundbreaking complement and component to build the presence on and around the moon and eventually beyond. And none of this is easy. Nothing NASA dares to achieve ever is. But as we have shown with this pandemic, NASA knows how to press forward. Artemis personifies why NASA needs continuity of purpose. Our missions have not achieved and were not achieved just by a single administration, but across many administrations. And I'm proud President Biden has shown strong support for these missions. And every breakthrough should be seen as a triumph for our country and all of humanity. And when the next humans walk on the moon, I hope that every single child around the world, I hope they see themselves in this new generation of explorers. Artemis missions should show every child that they can dream it. If they can dream it, they can be it. And perhaps they will one day join the NASA family as a technician or a mathematician. Maybe they'll walk on the moon or be the pioneers who venture onward to Mars. And from this sacred and historical place, humanity will soon embark on a new era of exploration. Aboard this spacecraft will be a flash drive. It will hold the names of over a million individuals from around the world. That flash drive will contain more than names. It will represent our stories, who we are, The child who imagines themselves soaring in the skies. The student who burns the midnight oil at the library so they can build a rocket and a spacecraft like this one. The NASA employee who gazes up at the moon every night, knowing that their work will soon return humankind to the lunar surface. And when this monster rocket lifts off, It will carry all of our greatest hopes in the heavens. Every single person who dreams of discoveries will see many more in our lifetime. I want to thank all of you, all of these workers, the whole space team, the family of NASA.
0: And if you want your name on that flash drive to go to the moon, then uh, visit NASA's website, It's www.nasa.gov, N-A-S-A dot and uh, you'll find links there to where you can add your name to that flash drive. Well, we've uh, got uh, time now for a song by Eddie Vedder, and uh, this is called Invincible, and it's NASA's theme song for the Artemis mission.
1: Yeah.
3: Point three Southern FM The Sounds of the Bayside.
0: The mirrors of the James Webb Space Telescope have been aligned and the optics are working successfully. Yay. Scott Acton is the wavefront sensing and control scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. He tells how this alignment was achieved.
5: We got together and looked at the very first diffraction-limited images that came out of the Webb telescope. And what we collectively saw as a group is we have the highest resolution infrared images taken from space ever. So you think of it as a blob on a a picture, you know, but it is extremely high resolution. We have uh, exceeded Every expectation, the telescope has, has performed better than the models said it should. It we've we've even achieved. Uh, uh, you know, we talk about resolution and, and wavefront quality. We've we've done better in those regards than we thought we would do, and we're just thrilled to death. And to get there, we went through a process. Well, we did the segment identification, and then we formed the image array. And then once they were in the image array, we used this phase retrieval technology to position each of the mirror segments and the secondary mirror itself, such that all the optical aberrations were effectively eliminated. We tilt the mirror segments to bring the light from each mirror so that it falls on top of each other at a common point in the middle of the detector. And we call that image stacking. And that concentrates all the light in a single place, but the images, the the segments themselves are not cooperating. They're not uh, working together at that point. They're all their own individual telescope. And the next phase in the process is something we call coarse phasing. And that's where we adjust, literally it's the piston. It's the up and down motion of the mirror segments relative to each other. We control the piston of the segments so that they all come together in creating a complete monolithic primary mirror. If you know exactly what the shape of that telescope is and you know exactly how the light is falling on your detector, it turns out that you can prove, you can actually prove mathematically that that is enough information to tell you exactly what you need to do to that telescope to fix the alignment errors. And why do we know this? We know this because of something called a pupil imaging lens. And this allows us to take a picture of the primary mirror of the telescope. People have referred to it as a selfie. Right? Well, that's, that's what it is actually. But that's really important mathematically. Now, there's a catch, however. Just because you know a solution to something exists does not automatically give you that solution. And that is the difficult part. That's what we've spent 20 years working out. It's highly mathematical, uses something called Fourier analysis. But that's what we do is we we tease out those solutions and we find what we need to do to each optical element to achieve perfection. We then turn to a different way of doing phase retrieval across the entire aperture of the telescope at the same time. And, and for that, we're not going to take the telescope out of focus. Instead, we have some, some lenses that are in one of the science instruments that we use to automatically create a defocused image. And we look at these images and taken as a whole, then we can tell the last little bit of alignment errors that are, that are in the telescope that we need to fix. And that's what we accomplished today. We analyze those images and we apply the corrections leading to the diffraction limit of the perfect performance of the telescope. So there's only one thing left to do, and that's to see how well the telescope is aligned in the other science instruments. And we'll check the alignment there, and if necessary, then we'll apply a solution that optimizes for the entire telescope. We then periodically measure the alignment of the telescope and make corrections as necessary. I cannot wait to see what it discovers.